traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller and all we say is please at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel belted radials and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to write. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. My life has value. I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Welcome to the Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. Yeah, what he said. Richard Serrett here, your mad prophet of the airwaves, and welcome to Radio Free Canada news notes and opinions from the underground for Thursday, April 21st, in the year of our Lord, 2022. So today at midnight... The uh, temporary vaccine mandate at the land border crossings into the United States were set to expire. That's the mandate that requires all travelers to the U.S. entering via a land crossing from Canada and presumably Mexico, although it only applies to people coming from Mexico who are attempting to cross illegally. If you cross illegally, if you're breaking the law and are an illegal alien, then you're not required 
to have a vaccine, but that's another show. Anyway, you'll get a, a free cell phone and a free bus ticket to anywhere you want to go. Anyway, for, for a short time, there was hope that the vaccine mandate had expired last night at midnight. And so millions of vaccine-free Canadians were very excited. They had hope they could finally leave the country. They could drive to America and from there perhaps fly to some other destination. Since millions of Canadians currently are prohibited from boarding a plane in their own country. So for a few hours, there was jubilation, celebration, like the Berlin Wall coming down. But it was short-lived. That vaccine mandate at land crossings with the U.S. has been renewed, reinstated. And this time, there's no end date. In other words, it appears it's not temporary. And that, my friends, is a hard punch to the gut. Uh, Dr. Mark McDonald, he's a psychiatrist and author of United States of Fear, How America Fell Victim to a Mass Delusional Psychosis. Uh, basically, he's saying that the, the pandemic of fear has been worse than the COVID-19 pandemic itself. And the ones harmed the most are children. Think about it. They were bombarded for two years by incessant messaging from parents, teachers, peers, television, and more. Going back to school became dangerous. Children were told to stay home, stay safe, avoid any risk and danger to themselves or others. Many have internalized the fears of their parents, he argues. This despite studies showing otherwise healthy children are at a very, very low risk from COVID-19. And children are also significantly less likely to spread the virus than adults. I want you to hear this from American psychiatrist, Dr. Mark McDonald. Why exactly are we here? And I answered my own question. I said, we're here because we, the adults, are afraid. We are scared. We are anxious. We don't know what to do. So we are transferring our fear and anxiety onto our children. We are using them as surrogate anxiety collectors so that we can feel safe and good. We are sacrificing our children for our own emotional well-being. And this is sick. This is immoral. It is antisocial. And it is abusive. Because no society, not one, that sacrifices the young to protect the old, whether it's true or not, and it's not true, it's a fantasy that they're being protected, but no society that does that can survive. Dr. Mark McDonald, he's, he's absolutely correct. And I have said this many, many times on this program. We have in our society today, a bunch of neurotic adult hypochondriacs, many of whom are teachers or school administrators and they're hiding behind children. Imagine the cowardice. Many of them want children to wear masks forever. They want children triple vaxxed, healthy children, triple vaxxed. Here's a perfect example from the other day. And I, I wanted to talk about this yesterday, but I ran out of time. This is from Tuesday's Toronto Sun, Brian Lilly and Anthony Fury. Brian Lilly, I don't know. I mean, I know his work. I, he's, he's not been on the program. Anthony Fury, I know he's been on the show several times. The Toronto District School Board 
is investigating a teacher who's been placed on home assignment after he sent a hostile email to students claiming that those without masks are, quote, maybe even killing me, end quote, and that many or that any unmasked students will need to sit outside in the hallway or face detentions and other consequences. The message was from Sandy Gladstone, an art and woodworking teacher at Northern Secondary School in Toronto. And of course, this goes against both TDSB and provincial policy, which says that masks remain optional for all students. He writes, so this is to let you know that you will be admitted to our classroom only after I request you have a well-fitting mask on. And it will be kept on over your nose throughout your time with me. You will also continue to abide by our backpacks down, hands washed with soap, get seated protocols. This policy also appears to be of Gladstone's creation, as there is currently no mandatory TDSB hand-washing policy related to COVID-19. Gladstone added, if you object to this request and if you are okay with infecting me and others, maybe even killing me, no problem. You do you. Seated in the hallway outside our classroom, not wandering. I'll pass you some work to complete. Then the teacher warned, if you use the hallway time to disappear or to be uh, disruptive, that will lead to detentions and other consequences. The message explained that in this pandemic epoch, as a responsible Canadian citizen, you must be utilitarian, not libertarian, in your thinking and behavior. That means caring about and protecting the societal collective, not feeding the ego of the selfish, ignorant individual. Gladstone, who also works as an artist and architect, did not respond to an email from the Toronto Sun requesting comment. The TDSB, though, told the Sun they, that while they do ask students and staff to wear masks, it remains a personal decision and Gladstone's email does not represent their guidance. All right. Again, that was Brian Lilly and Anthony Fury from the Toronto Sun. The nonsense. Protecting the societal collective. The societal collective. There is no such thing as a collective. It's a fiction. There are only individuals individual rights. There are no such thing. There is no such thing as group rights. Societal collective. You must be utilitarian, not libertarian. Yes, comrade. This is exactly what Dr. Mark McDonald is talking about. And if your child has this person as a teacher, I am truly sorry. That's most unfortunate. Uh, say, did you know Get this, Jacob. Did you know our universe may have a twin that runs backwards in time? How wild is that? Uh, Professor Paul Delaney from the Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University will be here in the second hour to explain. Uh, conservative leadership hopeful Pierre Polyev was in Toronto earlier this weekend and held a rally at the Steam Whistle Brewery in the heart of liberal Toronto. And um, so many liberals were incensed. He's coming here. And uh, they were obviously worried because uh, the event was packed. So Steam Whistle issued a letter basically distancing themselves from the event, practically apologizing for allowing Polyev to use their facility. Uh, Daniel Boardman from the National Telegraph will be here also an hour or two to discuss. The uh, government-funded, government-funded snitch group, the Anti-Hate Group, is uh, once again slandering Cosbar uh, because they have the audacity to stand up for women's sex-based rights. Mia Ashton from Cosbar, that's Canadian Women's Sex-Based Rights. She'll be here this hour. 
as part of our In Defense of Women segment, an FDA official has admitted, well, what anyone with one iota of common sense already understands, we can't keep vaccinating and boosting for COVID-19. We're up to what? Booster number, booster number two. They call it booster number two because it sounds better than saying your fourth shot. Art Moore from WND will be here. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Uh, but first, federal conservative leadership candidate Leslin Lewis, the MP for Haldeman Norfolk, is dropping by. Looking forward to that discussion. The Richard Serrett Show is off and running for Thursday, April the 21st. Facta non verba. We're back as the Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Hey, welcome back. Well, the uh, race for the federal conservative leadership is still, what, eight months away, but uh, things are starting to heat up. And uh, we've, uh, we've spoken with Pierre Polyev previously, and today I'm delighted to welcome uh, another candidate, another hopeful for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada, who is the uh, MP for Haldeman Norfolk and uh, Leslin Lewis. Welcome to the program. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me here. My pleasure. Now, I, I, um, I don't make any bones about it. I'm a conservative. This is a conservative, a small C conservative, a conservative uh, talk show. Uh, and I kind of, I, um, I try to live by Ronald Reagan's 11th commandment, which is thou shall not criticize fellow Conservatives, he said Republicans, but I'm going to substitute it for conservatives. So this is not uh, this is not a gotcha question, but it's it's a question that I have vowed to ask every uh, politician who comes on this program, and it's a sincere question. I would like your definition, if we could begin with this, a definition of what a woman is, Leslie. I am a woman. That's my definition. You're a woman. Okay. okay. Yes, I am. All right. Okay, but what is a woman? Could you could you give us a definition? Logically, I was born a woman. I can conceive, um, I have a womb, and I have less testosterone than men. I'm a woman. That's how I define myself. I'm a woman. Terrific. Okay. Now we've got that out of the way. Thank you for that. Um, So you you finished third in the last leadership race, a pretty uh, respectable finish, uh, considering it was your first uh, run. I'd like you to spend a few moments and just uh, explain why conservative members should vote for Leslin Lewis in September rather than Jean Charest or Pierre Polyev. Just distinguish yourself from the other candidates, if you could. Well, I'd like to say that I finished first in the popular vote. Leslin Lewis, Conservative MP for Haldeman Norfolk, and of course, 
she, um, I guess in, in the ballot, she finished uh, third, but as she pointed out, she was, uh, she had, she was leading in the popular vote and uh, ended up finishing third behind Aaron O'Toole and P- Peter McKay. So um, she'll be facing off against Jean Charest, Pierre Polyev, uh, Patrick Brown, Roman Baber. There are, to date, I believe, 11, 11 individuals so far running for the conservative leadership. And I would say uh, uh, that uh, Leslin Lewis has come out. I believe we have Leslin Lewis back. All right, let's try her again. Leslin, are okay. you there? Okay. Here we go. How is that? So far, so good. All right. So you just uh, go ahead and, and explain why uh, we should vote Leslin Lewis or conservatives should vote Leslin Lewis as opposed to Jean Charest, Pierre Polyev, Roman Baber, Patrick Brown. Yes. So as I said, I like to characterize it as I won the popular vote rather than I finished third, because as you know, I got more votes than all of the other candidates combined. I believe that I am the best candidate to lead this party because I'm the unifier in the group. I will bring the party together and respect every voice of the different aspects, the different ideologies within our party, whether you're fiscal conservative, progressive conservative, libertarian or social conservative, you will have a place in our big tent party. I'm also from industry, so I'm not a career politician. I've created wealth, I've employed people, I've signed the front of a paycheck instead of a back of a paycheck. I know what it's like for an employee to be dependent on me and make sure that that my business continues to thrive so that their mortgage. So I come from a very, very different perspective than the other politicians who are essentially career politicians. Uh, you're to be commended because you have not been uh, you've not backed down in terms of speaking out on on social conservative issues. Um Maybe I could I'll get you to sort of address that if you want to if you want to sort of put forward your your views on some of these social conservative issues that will come up. You know, you're going to be asked by Evan Solomon if you're going to march in a gay parade. You know, he's going to ask you that. Uh, you know, they just they go back to that 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 but question. I already asked you that. that you I did? think that's old news. Old yeah. news. Yeah, he asked me that uh, so many times in 2020 that I interviewed with him today. He didn't even bring that up, but he brought up other issues, of course. Right. They're going to try to use it as a like, gotcha, a gotcha question, right? So h- how do you uh, how do you intend, I guess, to to uh, to handle the the uh, the left media when it comes to they're going to they're going to try and divide. They're going to try and use that as a wedge. And and some of your conservative candidates may as well that are that are not that don't share your social conservative views. Just speak to, to that issue a little bit, if you could. We have diversity of opinions that people have to hide what they believe. Everybody believes something. And so even I have friends, I'm pro-life, but I have a lot of friends who are pro-choice. And we have respectful discussions about what we disagree on and what we agree on. Now, my approach is to look at building bridges, look at unifying not only our party, but the country. So let's focus on things that we agree on. So things like making sure that pregnancy care centers get funding so that a woman who finds herself in a situation of an unplanned pregnancy, but may decide to do the loving thing of giving that child up to a loving family for adoption that she supported. And whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, 
you believe in that. And, and the majority of Canadians agree on that. So I believe that there's so many things, so many social issues that we agree on, and we should try to just build bridges and have respectful dialogue. All right, Leslin, we'll take a quick time out, come back. We appreciate your time. Leslin Lewis, Conservative MP for Haldeman Norfolk, seeking uh, the uh, leadership of the Federal Conservative Party. Back with more of our conversation in three minutes. Don't go away. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serra Show. All right, time is tight. We just have a few minutes uh, remaining with Leslin Lewis, Conservative uh, MP for Haldeman Norfolk and uh, conservative leader hopeful, leadership hopeful, and that uh, that uh, will happen in September when the uh, Conservative Party will select their new leader among uh, John Shray, Pierre Polyev, Roman Baber, and about, well, I, I believe the field now is about 11 individuals. Uh, Leslin, we have a prime minister who is admitted he doesn't pay much attention to fiscal policy. Recently, uh, someone on Twitter found an old video of him talking about, you know, he has difficulty with... Uh, with uh, dealing with with simple arithmetic, uh, and yet we have inflation now uh, nearing seven percent, and that was before you know the latest carbon tax uh, and so forth. So who knows? It could be eight, ten percent uh, higher. What are we going to do? What are you going to do as leader of the Conservative Party, as Prime Minister, uh, about inflation? We need to uh, bring back our production capacity. We need to bring our supply chains home and up production. Right now we're consuming more than we're producing. And we have a lot of, uh, we have more dollars chasing less goods. We need to become a, that's producing more. Okay. So let's try and soldier on as best we can. I'll ask you, uh, a lot of people are concerned about provisions in the last federal budget to sort of lay the groundwork for introducing a digital currency. I mean, this is not conspiracy a lot of countries around the world are talking about a digital currency. The, the Canadian Bankers Association talking about introducing a digital currency. What are your views on a, a digital currency? Well, I have very serious concerns about it. We'll have to do this hopefully over a landline the next time. Again, we had the same issue with uh, Pierre Polyev. This is unfortunate. So what do we have coming up? Let me just uh, revisit what's on the menu. Art Moore from WND will be here, co-author of See Something, Say Nothing. And we'll talk about this FDA official who has admitted we can't keep boosting for COVID-19. I mean, how many, how many booster shots? How many booster shots are we gonna, are we gonna do? Four, five, six? And then when that starts to wane, seven, eight? At what point do we recognize this is Einstein's definition of insanity? The vaccines are not effective. And the FDA's, well, at least one official is waking up to that fact. Mia Ashton from COSBAR, Canadian Women's Sex-Based Rights, will be here. There's a, an anti-hate group they're funded by the Canadian government and uh, they turn over rocks looking for hate. They're the anti-hate group. And uh, they have COSBAR, Canadian Women's Sex-Based Rights. Of course, we have members on this program every Thursday. And they are slandering COSBAR, according to COSBAR. 
calling COSBAR a hate group because they're standing up for women's sex-based rights. They want safe spaces for biological women, including sports, women's prisons, women's change rooms. We had an incident uh, in Halton, the Halton School Board have announced that transgendered students who wish to change in a girl's change room. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Will be allowed. And if biological females feel uncomfortable with that, they will be asked to, to change elsewhere. And there's a quick fix for this. It's called a unisex bathroom. This is not about denying transgendered people rights. It's about protecting and safeguarding women's rights, which have been hard, hard fought for over the last century and more. Mia Ashton will be here to discuss. All right, Art Moore is coming up next. We'll talk about the FDA official who says we can't keep boosting for COVID. Stay with us. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. All right, how many more booster shots are we going to take before we finally figure this out? They're not effective. They start to wane within weeks. Are you going to take six, eight shots a year heading into the future? Well, an FDA official is saying that a fourth COVID booster shot should be seen as a stopgap measure and concludes we simply can't be boosting people as frequently as we are. Here with that story is our good friend from WND, Art Moore. Hey, Art, welcome back. How are you? Hey, thanks, Richard. Good to be with you. Likewise. Uh, so who is this F- FDA official and, and how did this sort of come up, come up this uh, comment? Yeah, interesting. This is uh, Dr. Peter Marks, and he is the head of a section of the FDA called the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research. And basically, that means they, they evaluate biologics like vaccines, vaccines and drugs. And uh, so it, it's interesting that in this case, um, the FDA uh, announced that they were uh, Author, well, it's not authorizing, it's really you know, recommending that a fourth booster shot be given to people who are age 50 and over. But they did that without their usual uh, meeting of experts, bringing together uh, people from, uh, often from academia, scientists, to have a, a discussion, along with some uh, public comment. 
as to whether this is a good idea. And uh, they, they bypassed that, but they did have a meeting afterwards and talked about the future of these vaccines. And so uh, Marx uh, was, was simply uh, commenting uh, during this uh, hours long meeting and, and saying, uh, you know, we, we really shouldn't keep doing this. And certainly in his mind had to be all the, the, the science, the, the studies, the, the data that's out there that, that shows that there's an indication that the more you get vaccinated, uh, the less effective uh, your body is at warding off this disease. In other words, it's compromising your immune system. So you were mentioning that this, this fourth booster, um, they pushed this through without any, I guess they call it an external expert voting process. Uh, as you mentioned, they bring people together from the outside and they discuss and they debate and then they hold a vote as to whether they're going to approve it. This is the FDA vaccine panel, right? And and they didn't vote on it this time. They didn't even debate it. They just pushed it through without, I mean, how, how do they do that in the absence of, do they have any data? Yeah, well, to be clear, you know, these, these panels, they make a recommendation then the FDA itself uh, gives the final word on that. But uh, no, it does seem that they uh, are, maybe they didn't want to, uh, you know, in front of the public, discuss what the science says, because uh, clearly uh, you have people like um, Dr. Marty McCary of Johns Hopkins University. Johns Hopkins is one of the most prestigious uh, health uh, medical universities in our country. And he's saying, hey, you know, this is crazy. This does not align with the science. And uh, he, he's an epidemiologist. Uh, he certainly is, is familiar with it. And there are many, many others who are saying uh, that the FDA is, is, not, is not really making decisions based on science as much as on politics. And it's interesting, this person we're talking about who made that statement, Dr. Peter Marks, uh, according to some pretty solid reporting um, last year, he was at the center of the resignations of two top FDA scientists who quit uh, apparently because the FDA was making decisions that was that were based on politics, based on what the Biden administration wanted. And uh, McCary certainly was aware of that. And he, he commented recently that, uh, hey, this political er interference uh, is, is undermining good science. Right. And he also argued there's, again, zero clinical data that a fourth dose reduces hosp even hospitalization risk. This is the one they keep touting, right? That if you, if you take the booster, yes, you could still get infected. Yes, you might even pass that infection onto somebody else, but it will reduce hospitalization. And here, there appears to be, at least according uh, to Dr. Macquarie, there is zero clinical data on a fourth dose reducing hospitalization. Right. And, and there's also a lot of data. And certainly if you look at places where they carefully keep stats, such as uh, the UK, uh, and, and, and also we've talked before about um, Alberta, the province of Alberta, but some places where they, they keep uh, careful stratified uh, data, it's, it's indicating that, uh, that there's a, a, a negative efficacy, meaning it, it, you know, it makes it more likely that you would be infected and, and also suffer severe illness or be hospitalized or, or even die. And, and it's important to remember this 
sequence of defenses for the vaccines. At first, we were told uh, our CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, said, uh, hey, if you get these shots, uh, you're not going to get COVID-19. You're not going to transmit it. They, that's what they told us. And they said, you know, 95% to 100% efficacy. And then gradually they had to admit, you know, according to what was actually happening, that no, it's, it's not really effective uh, for those two reasons, but it is effective uh, in uh, making sure that you don't go to the hospital. But now that's, that's been eliminated. So what do we have left? And, and what do we have left in, in a situation where COVID-19 is, is dominated by Omicron or subvariants of Omicron, which present with mild symptoms, with symptoms that are similar to the common cold. Exactly. So what is Dr. Peter Marks saying when he says this is a stopgap measure? Is he saying, let's just stop with the boosters until we can find a more, I don't know, permanent solution? Like, again, going back to the idea that we would be doubly vaxxed and that would be it. Two shots and you're done. So in other words, go back to the drawing board, come up with a better vaccine. Is that what he's suggesting? I think that's what he is suggesting. I, I think, uh, you know, certainly uh, the CEO of Pfizer, the, the, the leading vaccine uh, in, in many countries, has he admitted way back uh, months ago that the vaccine was, uh, was fine-tuned for the original Wuhan strain. And since then, there have been many other strains, Delta and Omicron. And he said, hey, we're working on one for Omicron that's going to come out in March. That was sometime last year. And, and I don't think that's happened. But somehow Marx has this idea that they're going to uh, have a more advanced vaccine that will cover all the different strains. But, but clearly, reasonable people, uh, and you even hear this sometimes from Fauci saying, well, it's going to become endemic, meaning that every flu season, this will come back around, we'll have to deal with it, but it's going to be more like the seasonal flus that we're used to, which, by the way, are, are deadly to some people. I mean, it, it happens. There's tens of thousands of people who die in, in the United States uh, from the flus, uh, di different ones that come. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the consensus among epidemiologists is, yeah, it, it is going to uh, be more like the seasonal flu, which means that uh, we shouldn't continue to, to stop uh, society as we know it and lock down everything and do all the things that we're, uh, we've 100%. been doing. Well, it seems to me that the, 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 what's underlying all of this is uh, governments around the world are on the hook for hundreds of millions of doses and uptake is slowing down. Uh, and so, that, but yet they keep pushing these, these booster shots, which clearly are not uh, having the intended effect. Uh, Art, always appreciate your time. Thank you. My pleasure. Art Moore author at WND, co-author of See Something, Say Nothing, available at Amazon. All right, back with uh, Mia Ashton, writer and member of Cosbar, as we uh, uh, defend women's sex-based rights. Stay with us. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. All right, antihate.ca. This is the uh, federally funded a snitch organization. They go around looking, looking for hate and racism and, uh, and then report back and keep files on people and take their government stipend. Uh, well, they're going after Cosbar again. 
they've uh, accused Cosbar previously of uh, being a hate group, of being transphobic. And uh, now in a, uh, an article posted on their website, antihate.ca, back in uh, early April, April 7th, headline, trans people are being slandered as groomers and pedophiles by the far right. And uh, of course, they identify Cosbar a prominent Canadian anti-trans hate group, which, uh, whom they say are deploying uh, tropes similar to, uh, well, calling, uh, calling trans activists groomers and uh, portraying homosexual men as pedophiles. Mia Ashton is a member of COSBAR and a writer, and uh, she joins us now. Welcome, Mia. Thank you. All right. So, um, what uh, what precipitated this latest attack against Cosbar? I actually I think it's in relation to two tweets on the official Cosbar Twitter account. One of which was a retweet of one of my own tweets. Um, they seem to have taken exception to the fact that I referred to gender dysphoria as a mental illness. Because as we've talked about on this show before, you can't call it a mental illness anymore, despite the fact that it is a mental illness. So I'll, I'll read my tweet that is no longer available. It's no longer up on Twitter because somebody reported it and Twitter deemed it hateful and I had to, I had to delete it. But it did read, they turned a mental illness into a civil rights movement and made failure to validate the sufferer's delusion a hate crime. As a result, children are being sterilized and young people are having healthy body parts chopped off. If you speak out against this, you are a bigot. So that's what I said, and they have taken that as evidence. Because Causebar retweeted it, they've taken that as evidence that we are an anti-trans hate group. But of course, I, I wrote it, so I would say this, but it's 100% true. Everything I said was true. It, gender dysphoria is a mental illness. It's recognized and listed in the DSM-5, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Right. right. And they have turned it into a civil rights movement. And we are all forced to play along with the delusion of those who believe themselves to be the opposite sex. Right. And at the same time, you know, we, we have incredible compassion and, and empathy, sympathy for, for sufferers, as we would with anyone with uh, a mental health issue, whether it's depression, whether it's schizophrenia, whether it's autism, whether it's gender dysphoria. Uh, so how did, you know, how did this become uh, where you, you, you can't even have compassion for these people and, and try to understand them while still trying to protect and safeguard women's sex-based rights? So suddenly now you're a, you're a bigot, a transphobe, and a, and a, and a, and a hate group. It's because this particular mental illness is politicized. So this this is a the the movement is they're very rigid in the what they will tolerate. So we must pretend that it's not a mental illness. We can't we can show compassion for people who suffer from gender dysphoria, and I do. But there's you have to draw the line at we have to be able to call something a mental illness because the children who are getting sucked into this 
they don't believe they have a mental illness. They think that they are literally the opposite sex. And that's doing terrible harm because it's detaching them from reality and leading them to believe that the answer to all of their problems is medical transition. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, so one of the things that they do at uh, this anti-hate.ca group, one of the things they do at the end of the article is, is they try and compare um, Cosbar's views on uh, transgendered people with um, the way that schools treated, uh, you know, gays, I guess, back in the 50s or the 60s, or not schools per se, but certain certain groups, you know, that they tried to uh, portray homosexuals as pedophiles or or there was anti-gay rhetoric uh, in, in, in the 1980s. I mean, how... Why are they making that comparison, do you think? I mean, it's, it, uh, it's certainly not valid, but what are your thoughts? Okay, well, gay rights, gay rights was, we, it's over. We, they, we won, gay rights won, and we accept gay people for who they are and who they want to marry. And, and the fight is won. So a lot of these trans rights organizations, they just sort of morphed from being gay rights organizations to trans rights, but there's a very direct conflict between the two. So they like to compare the two fights, but the two fights are very different. Gay rights only asked for acceptance. We only had to accept that some people love members of the same sex and wish to marry them. That's really all they asked for. Whereas the trans rights movement asks that we throw reality out the window and we accept this new version of reality in which there are male women and female men and male lesbians and children born in the wrong body. So the comparison is not a fair comparison at all, but they like to paint anyone who disagrees with their ideology as the sort of the same as the homophobes of the 1980s, just to, it's an oversimplification. They're not the same fight at all. Right. And as we discussed prior uh, on the, on the program, it may be an unintended consequence. I don't know, but, but um, this rush to treat gender dysphoria uh, with harsh medical interventions is actually leading to the erasure of, of gays and lesbians because these individuals that, that are suffering from gender dysphoria left to their own devices may just grow up to be a lesbian or a gay male. But it's particularly um, for the lesbian community because um, if you're a gender non-conforming lesbian now as a teenager, you're almost certainly going to get sucked into the thinking that you are a boy instead because gender non-conformity is a sign that you're trans, except it's not. It can You can just, these girls could have just grown up to be healthy, gender non-conforming lesbian adults, but instead they are getting sent down this medical pathway instead. So the movement, I believe, the trans rights movement itself is deeply homophobic because it, it, on the one hand, it has redefined same-sex attraction as same-gender attraction, attraction. A lesbian is supposed to be attracted to a male woman. And on the other hand, it's this attack on gender non-conforming teenagers funneling them towards this medical pathway. So uh, this latest slander uh, from anti-hate.ca, what, will, there be, will there be further legal action? You're already 
um, going after them for the first go round with the slander. What about this time? Oh, I don't. We haven't decided yet. We don't know what's going to happen. All right. So, uh, Mia, how do we uh, support Cosbar? You can follow us on Twitter. You can, um, there's we, our website, visit our website. We have lots of information on there. You can make a donation. Um, just and, and just talk about this issue. Talk about the, the attack on women's rights and, and what's happening to children. Mia Ashton, writer and a member at Cosbar. Thank you so much, Mia. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Richard. All right. Hour two awaits. Plenty of shows still to come. We'll talk with a, uh, an astronomer from the university or York University about uh, our universe, which may have a twin that runs backward in time. Uh, David Freiheit from Viva Fry fame will be here to talk about uh, Quebec's controversial Bill 15. And uh, we'll talk about uh, Pierre Polyev's recent visit to the Steam Whistle Brewery with Daniel Boardman from the National Telegraph. Stay with us. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Petrodollars, electrodollars, multidollars, Reichmarks, rims, rubles, pounds, and shekels. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things today. That is the atomic and subatomic and galactic structure of things today. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Hello, yes. Can I help you? Richard! The Richard Serrett Show continues on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. Hey, welcome to Hour 2. And uh, I want to apologize again for our interview with uh, Leslin Lewis. That was on her end. She just a very bad Wi-Fi connection. And uh, we will try and reschedule uh, that. We'll get her on a proper landline telephone. Old technology. Folks, analog, that's the answer. <laughs> it's all about the digital these days, but it, uh, it, it'll, it'll let you down time and time again. But we will get Leslin Lewis on. It's important that you hear what she has to say. Very. Um... Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. 
Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Intelligent, capable individual who is vying for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. And um, we didn't get to hear what, she, uh, what she's all about. We're also trying to reconnect and uh, get uh, Pierre Polyev back on the program as well. Last time he was on, he was on a bit of a dodgy cell phone as well. All right. So speaking of Pierre Polyev, he was in town in the heart of liberal Toronto. I guess that was on Tuesday. And uh, the event, well, they had rented out the Roundhouse Brewery, which is the home of Steam Whistle. They make pretty good beer. And, uh, They almost were, Steam Whistle that is, almost apologizing for allowing Pierre Polyev to use their facility. They sent out a letter, April 19th, re, event booking in Locomotive Hall, Roundhouse, April 19th, Pierre Polyev meet and greet. Steam Whistle received a last minute booking for this event on April 13th. Steam Whistle is in no way affiliated with Pierre Polyev, does not endorse his political views, nor did the brewery sponsor the event. The candidate submitted an inquiry and went through the traditional booking process as any other paid client would for an event booking, whether it be a wedding, corporate event, or a private gathering. Over our 22-year history, a number of different political candidates and parties from all three branches of the Canadian government have rented our community event space. We did not choose our, we do not choose our clients. Rather, they choose our venue for its amenities, size, and location. We are, we have upcoming bookings for other political events this year. Strange. Why did they feel the need? Oh, I think we know why they felt the need to, uh, to write that letter, uh, this uh, sort of backhanded apology. Uh, here to discuss is our good friend, Daniel Boardman, senior contributor to the National Tele- uh, Telegraph. Hey, Daniel, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me back. So I'm not sure whether to feel bad for Steam Whistle or to boycott their products. I mean, I like their beer, but here's the thing. I mean, this letter was, uh, this was handed out to attendees, right? Who did, who is this letter intended for? So it was attended. So I went to it to cover it, but I didn't go flashing a bad. I just kind of walked in and didn't, uh, I just went up and took a spot to film that wasn't in the media state. So apparently it was handed out to like the mainstream media people uh, there. So it's very interesting because I, this was not an instance of, oh, a bunch of radical leftists screamed at steam whistle and they felt like they had to apologize Oh, the crazy left and corporates bowing down. This seemed to be a preemptive don't hurt me letter. Or if you look at Steam Whistle's politics, maybe the owners of Steam Whistle, it looks like have some, you know, uh, left-wing politics. And, you know, they, this was a means of self-chastisement, which it was, it was a very strange thing because it's not like there was a boycott Steam Whistle, Steam Whistle's alt-right, Steam Whistle's this or that. None of that, like, this is them caving to an imaginary left-wing mob that didn't exist. Like no one was boycotting them. There might've been three tweets cumulatively before this of why are they doing that? But by no means was there a left-wing mob attacking them. Now, had 
the Toronto Star got in on this. Why is Steam Whistle holding a Polyev rally? There would have been a left-wing mob because it doesn't take much these days. But this just seemed to be them self-chastising or putting out a preemptive, don't hurt me. Like It, it really made no sense what they're doing because now they've just angered Polyev fans and people like me, I'm like, okay, I like Steam Whistle. It's a local company. I was going to support it. Like that was a tiebreaker for me in choosing what beer to get from a bar. Like, okay, Steam Whistle, they're Toronto brewed, but now it's a tiebreaker the other way of Steam Whistle, you know, doesn't like my politics. So, okay, if it's the same price as another beer, I'll go for the, the beer that didn't tell me that I'm a bad boy. That's right. Now I'm going to have to go for Grolsch, which is yeah. the cheap, uh, the cheap import beer. <laughs> Yeah. That's my, you know, yeah, exactly. I'm the same way. Steam whistle when I go to the, uh, the LCBO because, uh, it, you know, it's, it's local, but if not, I'll, if they're out of stock, I'll go for Grolsch. So, uh, I'm, I'm curious in their 22 year history and uh, steam whistle said they've rented out the, uh, the, the, the venue to people of all political stripes. Have they ever issued a letter like this before? I probably not. Right. No, they, they never have. And, uh, I, you know, there were some people way backing on Twitter and some liberal MPs are like, See, it's not hard to fill out this room. Justin Trudeau did it in 2015. And you're like, yeah, Justin Trudeau sold out a room in downtown Toronto as the head of the Liberal Party, being quite popular in the heart of liberal Toronto. Uh, but Polyev is, you know, a conservative in the heart of liberal Toronto. And not only did he sell it out, well, he didn't sell tickets. So not only did he fill it, but there was 400 people in overflow that weren't allowed in because uh, because of, of the fire marshal stuff. So yeah, they've had a lot of other political rallies. There's been no condemnation of any other politician uh, for for any other reason. And yeah, I, I, I'm I'm not even sure if this is the first conservative they had, but this might be the first conservative popular politician they've had in the modern climate. So they felt they, like, I don't know, were they gonna? I don't know, were employee, like you'd, you'd never know if it was like a few employees, like a few bartenders who learned about it and said, oh, don't you know Pierre Polyev's all right? He once said inflation is caused by printing money and, you know, not- Oh, heaven forbid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that's Pierre Polyev's far right rhetoric is, you know, inflation is bad, stop printing money. Right. Well, they're, the, uh, the left is, they're doing contortions, twisting themselves, uh, you know, like a circus performer trying to connect Polyev somehow to Trumpers down in the States. Well, Trump had rallies and Polyev has rallies. Therefore, Polyev must be Trump. And even Sean Charest exactly is, is doing, playing the same game, right? Exactly. It's, it's, I'm glad you brought up that example. Uh, that's the exact example I used in the article that came out today in the National Telegraph, the one I wrote on... Uh, uh, Polyev is not a populist. He's just popular. And uh, that was the exact it, It's exactly what the media is trying to do is they're trying to conflate the words popular and populist. Um, and then basically the slur against Polyev is like, look, Trump was popular and had big rallies and lots of people like Polyev too. Therefore, it's the same thing. And this is, makes people feel like, oh, no. Well, it makes lunatics feel like, oh, no, it's an alt-right wave hitting Canada. But one of the distinctions I make, Polyev is kind of the anti-populist candidate in a lot of ways, the least populist candidate you've ever had, because he's different in the sense that he will explain problems in full. He will do five minutes explaining housing inflation, what causes it, and what are the factors. And then he'll do another five minutes going into detailed explanations of his solutions, which no one ever does uh, as a politician. No one ever explains anything. Uh, like you're, you're trained, like political staffers are, are paid to tell you to treat people like they're four years old and never explain anything. You know, John Charest, the way he's like, how, how am I going to do it? Well, I'm built to win and I have experience. 
That's how you're supposed to explain things in a campaign. I'm experienced. I've got things done before. I'll get it done again because you know me because I'm built to win. That's how John Sheree right. answers right. questions. And yeah, that's you know nothing. Policy. I know everything. Just leave it to me and be quiet. Yeah, whereas Polly will say, okay, I got three points on housing inflation. Okay, one, we got to stop printing money. All right, two, it's really on like municipal and uh, and and provincial regulations. So you have all these environmental regulations and housing regulations to stop people from building. So the way I'll do it is I'll tie infrastructure funding from the federal government to the amount of houses built in raw numbers. We'll cut back this, this, and this, and then we'll go this. And like, yeah, sometimes did Pierre Polyev say things to get the crowd examples like, oh, I found another billion dollars in saving. We're going to defund the CBC. Big pop. Okay. Is that more populisty? Maybe. But every politician by definition is populist. If you right. take the definition of populism is trying to appeal to the people and not the elites. Well, well it's, yeah, it's kind of a, a us versus them. It's the working class versus the uber rich. It's the 1% versus the rest of us. Or uh, I guess, I, I mean, I would consider probably have a bit of a, well, Trudeau is a, is a populist, right? It's Trudeau, us yeah. It's us versus, you know, uh, the unvaccinated. Uh, they're all populists. I mean, I, I don't know what, we, if, we, if you look at the definition of populist, every politician from Every 100% of politicians from the beginning of time to the end of time is a populist because no one has ever run on the slogan for the bankers, not the <laughs> Excellent point. I'm an elitist and I like it that way. Right. Hillary will say that, but behind closed doors to Morgan Stanley execs, not out in front of the rallies. Right. So everyone's a populist. And yeah, Justin Trudeau, how are we going to fix the economy from the heart outward? Literally said that. Sunny ways. The budget will balance itself. Right. You could, I, I'd say populism is more. Um, giving emotional or personality-based um, solutions to complicated problems. Like that's it. Like, again, we got, oh, economic inequality and the environment's so bad. Okay, so you're taking environmental issues and the economy, two very complicated issues. How are we going to do this? Well, we're going to grow the economy from the heart outwards. That's populist nonsense. Right. right. Nonsense. Emphasis on the nonsense. Yeah. Just, just have about a minute here. Uh, so Polyev is drawing these, you know, big rallies out in, in, in the West and it was going to be a litmus test. Could he do the same in, in the heart of liberal Toronto? And he did. So the left is starting to panic. And, and uh, of course these comparisons to Trump are only going to ramp up and he's going to be called a white supremacist. We get that, but that's how the game is played. The question is, will that translate because of the conservative, you know, the, the point system and the, the, the rank balloting, do these large rallies mean anything? Does he have, I guess, enough of a, a ground game in, in, in Quebec? and Because and, um, he's got to win riding by riding. It's 100 points per riding, right? The, yeah. Will they translate? I think so. I think it does translate. Because he's like, it's maybe not 100%. And you can make the argument Lewis's supporters are more going to translate because they're all at the churches and those are the real votey vote people. Uh, but when it's over a thousand people in downtown Toronto, that's over a thousand people in downtown Toronto. And in the leadership, he's going to pull in those, G yes, the GTA, I'm sorry, not the GTA, the Toronto ridings aren't going to play in the general because it's orange or blue, uh, orange or red, but they'll play in, in the thing. Like he'll get the millennials from, you know, uh, downtown Toronto to come out and say Polyev. So whereas Sheree might get some Quebec stuff over him, even though he's not the most popular guy in Quebec, he'll get these Toronto ridings and probably the GTA too. And I think Polyev has a good chance to win on first ballot. Interesting. All right. Always appreciate your insights, Daniel. Well done. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Daniel Boardman, The National Telegraph. Please support independent media, thenationaltelegraph.com. All right. This is a cool story. Ontario, or sorry, Ontario. Yeah, we're, we're in a parallel universe for sure. But our universe, our universe may have a twin that runs backward in time. Paul Delaney, Professor Emeritus, Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University is next to explain. Stay with us.
Welcome back to the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. So I've heard of antimatter from Star Trek. Scotty was always talking about antimatter. And uh, I've heard of anti-gravity. You know, that's what they're working on at Area 51, apparently. But I've never heard of an anti-universe. An anti-universe that is, in fact, or theoretically, I suppose, running backwards in time. Here to explain is Professor Paul A. Delaney from the Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University. Hey, Paul, welcome back. How are you? Do we have Paul? Are you there? Hi, I hope so. <laughs> oh, right. You are. You are on oh, the air. Right. Welcome <laughs> Sorry back. Sorry about that, Mike. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, Paul, so uh, we're talking about this anti-universe um, running backwards in time. First of all, an anti, what is an anti-universe, pray tell? My theoretical colleagues can come up with almost anything imaginable on occasions. Uh, I'm not sure that there's an easy way of telling you what it is outside of mathematics, but as you are aware, we live in a universe and it's expanding in every direction. It's got lots of things in it, stars, planets, and stuff that we don't necessarily know so much about. And then in recent years, we've started thinking about multiverses where you can have several universes, perhaps an infinite number of universes that are also coexisting, but not quite inside our own. Well, now we've got this idea, this notion, a theoretical idea that maybe our own universe has a twin universe, a universe that in many ways is the opposite to our universe. So think of yourself in a mirror your twin in the mirror. Think of all of the uh, charged particles, positive and negative charges that exist in this universe and flip their polarity. Well, if you take the charge flip, the mirror flip, what we call the parity flip, then it stands to reason that in this mirrored universe, you have time that doesn't run forward in our sense, but runs backwards in our twins universe. But all of these things make sense within that universe. They just look, shall I say, odd to us from our vantage point. And uh, how, how, how they're just theorizing. I mean, you can't prove that this exists, right? I mean, how or, or can they? Well, that's the interesting part of it. There are some tests. If you take the premise that this charge, parity, time, symmetry, what we call CPT symmetry, which is really at the heart of quantum mechanics, if, if you take that as a given, and you expand it to encompass our universe and say, okay, if CPT symmetry really does exist at the macroscopic level of our universe, and therefore our twin should exist, then there are actually some experimental proofs or some experimental verifications that will tell us whether or not this is true or not. And so, for example, one of those things is what we call looking for gravity waves at the very beginning of time. When, when our universe started, the usual Big Bang theory had what we call a period of inflation where the universe expanded at an enormous rate and generated basically the conditions that we see here today. If that is true, then there will be imprinted on the signature of the Big Bang what we call gravity waves primordial gravity waves. If this CPT mirror universe, the one that's running backwards in time, is really true, 
then in fact the two universes are connected in a way that will allow inflation not to have been needed in the original moments of our universe. And so if we do not find the primordial gravity wave signature imprinted in our universe, then that would be evidence that this mirror universe does exist. Ah, so the anti-universe is inflationary. And here I thought it was the Bank of Canada responsible. Uh, <laughs> is there any way that we could contact this anti-universe? At this point in time, from what I am reading, the answer is no. These two universes are, in fact, quite distinct. And you could crudely think of it as we're on this side of the Big Bang and our mirror universe is on the other side of the Big Bang. It's, it, it, it's not a great analogy, but think of it as sort of your mirror. You're standing here and your reflection is standing there. You can wave at your, your reflection, but you can't actually go into your, your reflection, so as to speak. So no, there is no way we can directly communicate, but there may be hints based upon the physical attributes of our universe that suggests that the mirror universe exists. And how, how might we make use of this knowledge? How, what can we do with the, this anti-universe then? Well, you probably can't do anything with it, but we're always trying to understand the universe that is surrounding us. And as I said, you know, the gravitational wave, primordial gravitational waves, that period of inflation, even indeed the neutrinos that exist around us, all of these things are operating based upon a set of fundamental physical principles. So we try to understand the universe in which we live based upon the observations that we are making. And so if the CPT theory holds for the universe as a whole, and therefore the implication is that this mirror universe is in fact in existence, then it talks to us about fundamental properties of our universe. The neutrinos, for example, there should be a neutrino which has zero mass. There should be uh, uh, antiparticles associated with those neutrinos, which might in fact be the dark matter particle that we're searching. So it gives us insight into the way the universe is actually engineered. And that eventually has implication in the way you make, for example, semiconductors and the, the way we, we move between planets and stars. It does eventually come down to practical information for applications at an engineering level. But at the moment, we're just simply talking about trying to understand the grand properties of the universe. Oh, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, Paul Delaney, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University. Paul, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Happy to be here, mate. All right. Imagine uh, a universe, a twin universe that is the exact opposite of ours. So in this other universe, I'm actually brilliant and handsome. I want to go there. I want to go there. All right. When we come back, Quebec has passed a controversial bill, Bill 15, which uh, gives the state the ultimate supremacy over children, not the parents, the state. David Freiheit from Viva Fry will be here to discuss. Stay with us. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Welcome back. Last week, last Thursday, the Quebec National Assembly adopted a Bill 15 unanimously, and it promises to 
prioritize the interests of children over all other considerations, including apparently the interests of parents. What does this all mean? What are the implications? Why was this bill enacted? Here to explain or help us understand our good friend David Freiheit, creator of the wildly popular Viva Fry YouTube channel. Hey, David, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. How are you doing? My pleasure. My pleasure. So this one kind of snuck up on me. I wasn't following this story, Bill 15, and then all of a sudden last week it's enacted and I see people on uh, Twitter uh, you know, shouting at some uh, Quebec cabinet ministers saying, you know, you have no right. Uh, the children belong to the parents, not to the state and so forth. So uh, help us understand why was, what, what is the, this is an amendment, I guess, uh, to uh, Quebec's youth protection services. So why was Bill 15 enacted? What, why was it needed? As far as I understand, there was an incident where a, a young child was killed by the stepmother, where the, the mother duct taped her overnight to prevent her from leaving the house. Kid died, went to trial. Legault government promised to look into government abuse. You know, they, they promised to look into the situation, see what went wrong and what needed to be done in order to better protect children, I guess from abusive parents where they ought to have been taken out of the house and put into child protective services. Um, and that was the catalyst. They had an inquiry, and then this was the culmination of their inquiry, which was to revamp uh, la loi sur la protection de la jeunesse to effectively eliminate parental supremacy over the interests of the child. That is to say, children's interests would, would, would trump parental supremacy. And, um, and that's, this is the outcome. Now, it's, you know, the child's interest is going to trump all interests. The only question I'm asking is, in theory, parental interests are the child's best interests as a matter of, you know, as, as, as a basic rule. Right, right, right. Although in family court, for example, the judge, they'll, they'll talk about the child's interests are, are paramount, obviously. But as you say, presumably the parent. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. They should have the child's best interests at heart. That's not always the case. And it's a sad, tragic reality of the human condition that, that sometimes parents abuse their own children or, or kill their own children. These are sad realities. But, but so is Bill 15, as some are suggesting, so far reaching, so vague in its language that it could give the state, for example, the, 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 the power to, um, you know, medical interventions, uh, vaccines over the, the objections of parents? This is where obviously the concerns are, because the question you always have is what existing laws were inadequate to prevent against what the new law is supposed to be coming in to prevent. You already have laws against child abuse. You already have overt laws against crimes. The, the incident that occurred with this child in Granby didn't occur because of an absence of laws. It probably occurred because of an absence or an inadequate implementation of the laws. 
This is vague enough where it says, now the child's best interest trumps all. The question is going to be, what is the child's best interest and who determines the child's best interest? Because if they're supplanting the parental authority, they're saying it's no longer the parent that decides what's the child's best interest. That leaves two other options. One is the government and one are doctors or the other are doctors. And this is obviously the concern as to where it's going. People are thinking more of a gender reorientation uh, or gender reassignment. If the child says it's in my best interest, the parent says it's not. Well, the government's going to come in and say, child's threatening to harm themselves or kill themselves. We determine, therefore, with a, a doctor that says it's in the best interest of the child and we're trumping parental authority. That's the concern as to where it's going. And obviously the obvious one, vaccinations. If you say, I don't want to give my kid a vaccine, the government comes in and says, we know what's in your child's best interest for you. We're ordering it through the courts with the authority of the government. That's, that's the main concern. Well, we're already seeing, uh, for example, here in Ontario, uh, teachers are instructed not to, to inform parents if there is an uh, incidence of, you know, if a, if a child uh, has gender dysphoria and uh, the, the, the teacher's told, you know, don't tell the parents. So this is already creeping into our, into our public education system. Uh, and, and, and it's creeping into the court system. In British Columbia, there was the case of, uh, of a child who, you know, one parent objected, the other one didn't. The one who did not object, who wanted the reassignment surgery, came in with a doctor who specialized in it. Court ordered it, notwithstanding the objections of one of the parents. And, you know, that, that's a, they say bad cases make for bad law. That's one of the bad cases. But this is certainly the concern as to where it goes in terms of, you know, children uh, thinking they know what's best for themselves without uh, getting their parental authority or notwithstanding the, the, the parents' desire go to the courts, go to the authorities, and then you get the uh, child protection services come in and say, we're going to determine in lieu of the parent what is actually in the child's best interest. There, there, there's definitely room for problems here. Yes. And yet, David, it passed unanimously. Uh, nobody, no, not one MLA in Quebec stood up in opposition. Uh, that, that's kind of disturbing. It's an interesting thing. Unanimity is not what you want to see in politics ever. I mean, it doesn't mean it's so clear that it, it had the unanimity of all these politicians. What it means is that there's something of a political hive mind going on where these politicians, if there's no one dissenting, that's a bad sign. When you have to implement a new law in theory to take care of an issue, which I think is still covered by other laws, it's an interesting situation. Uh, I think it was Tacitus who said, more laws, less justice. You're implementing a new law to deal with something for which there were already laws existing. You're saying now, we're going to protect the child's interests above all other interests, including the parents. The parents' interests, it was not their own selfish interests. It was what they think is best for their kids. And so now you have these politicians unanimously saying, we think we know better than law-abiding parents, because obviously this law was not intended to protect against parents who want to abuse, isolate, or do bad things to their kids. It's just another way in my mind for the government to creep its claws into the family unit. 100%. It's a disturbing trend. It's really taken hold in this country. David, always appreciate your time. And we'll uh, remind listeners, uh, Viva Fry on YouTube. Uh, let's see, 537,000 subscribers. It's getting there. And people can find me on Locals, vivabarnslaw.locals.com. But uh, the, it's, it's amazing, the community we've built on YouTube. We talk about the important stuff, the legal stuff. I've been covering this for a while because removing uh, parental supremacy, uh, from the parent has been a concern of mine for a long time to see it pass unanimously. Unanimity is not a good thing with these types of issues. No, it's truly, it's truly frightening. David, thank you as always. Thank you. All right. When we come back, we'll uh, speak with 
Tamara Ugolini uh, about a potential conflict of interest with uh, Ontario's chief medical officer of health. Stay with us. Just having a little chin wag on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Well, this is potentially very concerning. We don't know for sure, uh, but there seems to be at least the appearance of a potential conflict of interest with Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Kieran Moore, who sits on one of Pfizer's advisory boards. Pfizer, of course, the drug company responsible for the Pfizer vaccine, which Dr. Kieran Moore has been pushing for some time. Here to discuss further is Tamara Ugolini, a uh, journalist with Rebel News. Hey, Tamara, how are you? Hi, Richard. I'm doing well, thank you. And how are you today? Terrific, thank you. So this has to do with a potential, we should stress the word potential, conflict of interest with Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Kieran Moore. Uh, Explain. Yeah, I I appreciate that you emphasize the word potential because it's sort of an ongoing hop on my investigative journalism to try to figure out whether or not this potential conflict where he sits on the advisory board for the Pfizer North American Lyme vaccine development strategy. Uh, So this initiative began sometime around 2018, prior to Kieran Moore becoming Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health at that time. He was merely Kingston's medical, local medical officer of health. And so he also works uh, within the institution, Queen's University, and so he's undertaken this research project to uh, do R&D research and development for Lyme disease. And in one article in particular from the Kingstonist, and I, I believe it was in 2018 when this was all first coming out into fruition, perhaps maybe 2019, um, the, the Kingston, his home locale, was going to potentially be the clinical trial site for a Lyme disease candidate later in the year. And a vaccine, so, uh, a vaccine candidate. Sorry, yes, a uh, vaccine trial to take place in Kingston uh, for this Lyme disease. And the Pfizer subsidiary is Valneva, and they are the only company currently in development of a Lyme disease vaccine. So. My questions are, or the main question is, you know, what role does Kieran Moore play on this advisory board? Is there any financial incentives or what's involved financially? And how may this affect his ability to provide unbiased and balanced policy recommendations to the Ford government? As we know, one of the main COVID injectable manufacturers is none other than Pfizer. Right. So just to summarize, uh, Dr. Moore, uh, sitting on Pfizer's Lyme disease advisory board, and when he uh, and since uh, I guess he was the regional chief medical officer for Kingston, uh, and that now here he is Ontario's chief medical officer advising the premier and obviously promoting vaccines, uh, Pfizer included. So. Um, did he declare? Did he declare that he had that he was uh, sitting on Pfizer's advisory board for Lyme, or did you have to dig that out? Well, it did come as a bit of a dig. 
Um, it goes back to a presentation that he gave in March 2021 when he was, again, still just the local medical officer of health in Kingston. And it was a talk to do with how the role that doctors play um, in vaccine encouragement and how they can kind of increase the uptake. I believe it was hosted, if our memory serves me correctly, by the University of Toronto. And in that presentation, this is the sole instance that I can find that Kieran Moore declares his conflict of interest as a member of Pfizer's Lyme Disease Advisory Board. Um, if you check out my full report at rebelnews.com, I link back to that particular video, and I believe we even show a clip in my full report where he himself declares this conflict. I have reached out to Kieran Moore via email to seek clarification, again, with those questions that I spoke about earlier. I did not receive a response back, which seems to be, uh, unfortunately, part of our new normal. Um, so I filed an access to information request to find out exactly what was happening with this Lyme disease research and development. And um, I suspect that underneath a lot of the heavily redacted response is where we would probably find the Pfizer or Valneva references. So we have appealed the redactions, some of the redactions, and also filed additional access to information, those are A-tips, uh, to seek some of the, the annual reports that would have had to be disclosed and find out some more about the stakeholders involved. So again, you want to find out if, he's, if that's a paid position on the advisory board and also how, how uh, his position on the Pfizer advisory board for Lyme could uh, influence his position as Ontario's chief medical officer of health, obviously pushing the Pfizer vaccine. Right, exactly. And I mean, and there's speculation there as well that even if there's not maybe a direct conflict now, despite the fact that he himself declared that there is one uh, currently, you know, what's, who's to say that something couldn't be brought to fruition in the future either? All right. Well, uh, great work, Tamara. As always, thank you for bringing this to our attention. It's an important story and we'll watch it with interest. And, and uh, when there's some sort of resolution, hopefully one way or the other, we'll get you back on. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Richard. Tamara Ugalini, Rebel News journalist, rebelnews.com, and uh, check out this story about uh, Dr. Kieran Moore. Is it ethical? Ontario's chief medical officer of health also sits on one of Pfizer's advisory boards. All right, when we come back, David Menzies, Rebel News mission specialist with an interesting story involving the Liquor Licensing Board of Ontario, their glossy food and drink magazine, and their awkward attempt to be socially inclusive. Stay with us. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. All right, this is an odd story. It involves the LCBO and their food and drink magazine and our uh, Muslim friends. Here with more is David Menzies from Rebel News. Hey, David, how are you? I'm very good, Richard. Hope you had a wonderful Easter, my friend. Uh, I, well, I get to celebrate it twice, uh, once for my side of the family and then uh, the Orthodox uh, Easter coming up this, uh, well, later this week, Friday, Good Friday. This is Holy Week for us. Oh, 
You orthodox double dippers. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's it. That's how we roll, my friend. All right. So what did you you find? Uh, First of all, you you may be one of the the very few people I know that actually will leaf through a a food and drink magazine. I've seen it, you know, when I go in to buy an occasional beverage. I've seen it on the counter. I've just never bothered to pick one up and go through it. But what did you find in the pages of food and drink magazine? Well, first of all, Richard, I just want to say this. I'm glad you never picked it up because it is absolutely offensive and egregious that the LCBO and, by extension, the Ontario government is in the magazine publishing business in the first place. They have absolutely no mandate to be there. I don't think they have a mandate, for that matter, to be in the retailing of liquor, uh, for starters. But certainly they have absolutely no mandate to put out a magazine when private sector magazine publishers, they're basically paying taxes to their competitor to put them out of business. So it is out, it is an outrageous affront. But I went through this vapid and vacuous um, spring issue of Food and Drink, uh, creatively entitled The Spring Issue. You can tell it's being put out by bureaucrats. <laughs> and what I ha- stumbled upon, uh, Richard, was an article uh, – entitled Traditions, Ramadan. Now, Ramadan, of course, is a very important um, holiday for those of the Islamic faith. Right, um, runs all months Richard, until like May 2nd, I think, uh, the, from April 2nd to May 2nd, right? They fast. Yes, uh, well, you might be right, because according to the magazine, it says April 2nd to May 1st, but I'll take your, <laughs> I'll take your word for it. And um, it goes on to say that, um, the, you know, food recommendations are... Um, uh, lamb and a, uh, a, a soup, and um, uh, it sounds very delicious, a, a type of uh, fritter um, called, um, it's a funnel cake type fritter called Zulbia. Oh, that's great. Well, first of all, the LCBO, even though the magazine is called Food and Drink, they don't sell any food, but they do sell drink and lots of it. And right off the bat, Richard, do you see something wrong here, uh, an article about Ramadan, uh, and you're a store that sells alcohol, mm-hmm. uh, namely, if you're a practicing Muslim, you don't drink liquor. That's right. And um, even though, and, and it was very confusing, the layout of the story, because above it is um, uh, an article called Top Picks. And among the top picks are 19 Crimes Snoop Dogg Cali Rose, Flying Monkey Space Age Sunshine Orange Creamsicle Quadruple IPA, Campari, Negroni, and Corona Tropical Cactus and Lime, none of which are non-alcoholic. So I thought, what's going on here? So I went to, there's something called Hello LCBO. It's a, uh, a chat line you can go on to. And I was asking questions that, well, you've suggested food that you don't sell, but what beverages pair with that food? And I was told, uh, go to a grocery store um, for juice. Okay, well, why is that? Now, this is where it gets really interesting, Richard. Um, I, because I, my, my preamble was that I'm going to have a Ramadan party, and uh, I want to make sure my Muslim guests are taken care of. And when it came to getting a clear answer, this person, this LCBO employee, would not state the obvious, which is, well, devout Muslims do not drink alcohol. Instead, he kept saying, ask your Muslim guests why. It was almost as though, Richard that this fellow, Sean, thought that to state a truism um, that Muslims don't drink alcohol would be deemed, I don't know, Islamophobic. 
And it was absolutely bizarre. And instead he's saying, go get them juice. Well, the LCPO doesn't sell fresh juice. It sells a lot of fermented juice. And um, it just shows you, I think, Richard, in their quest to be inclusive and diverse, they go right over the line to promoting what appears to be wine, uh, beer, and spirits to people who don't, don't drink alcohol. Right. And in the video, I further made the point, Richard, 10 years ago when I was employed at Sun News Network, we got a tip that um, LCBO stores were selling alcohol to minors who were um, passing the sniff test, if you will, by simply wearing a burqa. And I didn't believe it, Richard. So we did a test. We got a 15-year-old boy, dressed him in a burqa, and every LCBO we went to, he was sold hard liquor. He was not asked for ID. He was not asked to unveil. And in a way, I kind of felt sorry almost for the LCBO employee because you know what they're thinking deep down, Richard, is that if I dare ask for positive identification, uh, the next thing you know, City Pulse News is in the parking lot doing some kind of cultural insensitivity story that erupted in the store. But the point is, the LCBO bases its entire monopolistic existence on this bizarre concept called social responsibility, meaning that Richard, we can't have you having Serret's liquors because if you're a private sector operator, well, the next thing you know, uh, 10-year-old kids are going to be drinking Colt 45 in the parking lot. You just care about the almighty buck. That's nonsense, of course, um, because we allow convenience stores to sell restricted products, namely cigarettes, and that's no problem. And I can tell you, Richard, when the piece aired, um, all the LCBO did in terms of apologizing um, uh, to selling minors hard liquor was basically a press release that said, we promised Pinky Swear to do better next time. Now, Richard, if you owned a convenience store and you sold cigarettes to a minor, you would be severely fined. You might even have your license revoked, which is economic suicide. And believe it or not, the government actually sets up sting operations with minors who look older. But was the LCBO fine? Were any of those stores, um, you know, did they have a suspension of a week or two because they broke the law? And I'm telling you, the law, not a regulation. Right. No, right. of course not. No, because they're a government yeah, onto the Yeah, absolutely. It just again demonstrates um, their 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 obsolescence, redundancy. We don't need them, as you say. They're competing with other, uh, you know, food, beverage, gourmet type magazines using taxpayer yep. dollars. Uh, their awkward uh, re- attempts to be inclusive, uh, you know, including Ramadan in a um, uh, in a magazine that's promoting uh, alcohol. It's <laughs> yeah, it just um, it uh, defies all all logic, common sense, uh, however you want to put it. But it's a it's a great story, David. Thank you so much as always. Well, thank you so much, Richard. One last thing. I think you nailed it with the word awkward. That's the thing. In trying to be so inclusive, they run a Ramadan story in an alcohol magazine. They don't ask for ID for a, for, from a minor dressed in a burqa. And it's all about, I guess, this fear of being seen as culturally insensitive. And uh, I'll tell you, it's a self-inflicted wound, Richard. Exactly. Exactly. 
David Menzies, uh, co-host of the, the Rebel Daily, which is seen uh, at rebelnews.com, 12 p.m. weekdays. All right, my friend, we'll talk again soon. Cheers. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Jacob, Brandon, and Declan. I'm off tomorrow for Orthodox Good Friday. Be sure to enjoy the best of Richard Serichel presentation. Back on Monday at 4. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you tomorrow afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960am. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.